Texas talking oh. What was that that you said Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys are Texas Hello This is Shelly Smith Evan's mother Yes, Evan's mother Happy belated sixth birthday to the Texas Tribune. Today is my birthday, and my present is I get to do the intro to this week's Tribcast. Evan is such a terrible son. On the other hand, this may be the best gift he ever gave to his mama. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Shelly. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TripCast for the third week of November. He's a terrible boss, too, not just a terrible son. I'm I'm pretty much bad at everything. That's right. (laughs) Uh, All right. As I said, I'm joined by CEO and terrible son, Evan Smith. It is my mother's birthday. You know, that's not a... That wasn't a, a construct. That's an actual thing. I would hope that it's not a construct. We don't fake things here on the TripCast. No, no, only in our journalism. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Reporter Matthew Watkins. My mom retires on Friday, so I'm going to give her a shout out to you. Does she want to do the TripCast intro? <laughs> Does she listen week? to the TripCast? It's either her or we'll Bob Schneider. Out. We're just going to have mean, a, it's a week of everyone's mother. Maybe Bob Schneider, but it could be Mrs. Watkins. Yes. Actually, that's fine. And reporter Alexa Ura. Hi, my mom does not listen to the TripCast <laughs> or read our news. If we asked, if we asked her, she didn't even look at the Tribune. Like, what is that? Get a real job. Yeah, she's like, what do you Mrs. Do for- Johnson's Donuts is hiring. <laughs> now, that's an old donut that's, joke. That's from, from, that's from before, Sorry. right. We just yeah. let you in on our little conversation before. All right. Well, obviously, the biggest news this week is the aftermath of uh, last Friday's terrorist attacks in Paris. Uh, governor Greg Abbott, I think, came out and was the third governor this week of dozens now. We're now um, up to at least 20. 25, I think. I think. Yeah, Basically to say, you know, Texas's doors are shut to Syrian refugees. Alexa, how did he phrase it? And, and what kind of legal ground is the governor even on when it comes to accepting Syrian refugees or not? So Abbott is at almost 27 or 30 governors is at last count, I think. And so he said, you know, we're not we're going to halt Syrian refugees from being resettled in the state. And the language he specifically used was that he was directing the Texas Health Commission from no longer participating in the resettlement of any Syrian refugees. And it's a process that actually is handled by the State Department. The the, state, the U.S. State Department. The U.S. Yeah. State Department, yeah. The state plays a role in the sense that it administers funds to some of the local nonprofits that actually manage the resettlement. But it's, uh, it's completely federally funded. And so it's unclear what legal ground he even has to say you can't come into the country because the, state, the, state, de- to right? the state, yeah. because the state department hands off refugees to nonprofits that then actually do the resettlement. So if he's not in uh, his legal right to do it, none of the other governors is in his or her legal right to do it. Right. I mean, what they can do is they can tell the health commission, don't disperse these funds, but these funds are federal funds. And so what the the government has done in other states that have said, you know, we don't want to participate in the program, not because of Syrian refugees, but for other reasons, is that they just find a nonprofit in the state and then use them as sort of the main disperser of funds instead of the state government. And so that essentially the state could say, well, we don't want to do refugee resettlement at all and step out of it completely. But outside from that, there's really no way for him to say Syrians can't come to the state. And also, 
Syrian refugees and, and all refugees become legal residents after they're here for some time and they can become citizens after well, five and if, years. And in fact, Tony Dale was was uh, was saying yesterday, I think, you know, well, state representative, state representative from Cedar Park was was saying, you know, well, if Syrian refugees come here and they become citizens, they can do things like get guns, buy guns, right, right. <laughs> well, and also they can move here from other states after they've been here for a little while. So even if you said no to Syrians immediately being resettled, they could still move from North Carolina, from Montana. There's no sort of limit on where they can move once they get their green cards. Right. This is a political issue that's said without prejudice in one direction or another. It's a political issue, and it's it's of no political consequence to Abbott to be in league with the other governors in rejecting Syrian refugees. He knows the state that elected him. He knows the electorate that elected him, and it's better for him to be in this position than not. The legal basis for it is almost irrelevant because right. it's a it's a political position to right. take. But it's now a political position that's based on absolutely zero um, facts because the oh, Syrian- oh so we're suddenly going to get into into that now. <laughs> well, I mean, all look, of a sudden, look outside outside of the bombing. I mean, this may be getting into too many details, but they'd found this this passport that they believed was the passport of one of the bombers, and it was a Syrian passport. You know, somebody who had basically immigrated in one of the refugees. Right. But it turns out that it's a fake passport, and so the the whole. Pre- premise behind, you know, well, it could be these Syrian refugees who are posing a threat turns out to be, you know, to be fraudulent. So we have all these state governors doing this based on what appears now to be totally faulty information. Well, also Abbott cited in interviews, right, he cited the incident in Garland, which was Mm -hmm. not a refugee, right? It was not a refugee. And it was also someone who lived in Arizona. So keeping him from living in Texas wouldn't have done anything anyway. So right. the, 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 the fact is that everybody looks at what happened in Paris last week with alarm and sadness, first of all, but alarm second, and, and, and I think legitimately concern about the security of the country and the states. Uh, are we at risk of having something like that happen here? The fact sure. is, we, yeah. sure, <laughs> but, but at the same time, the fact is the U.S. is not, uh, uh, in this case, uh, France. Uh, we have an ocean separating us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the proximity of, of, of European countries to the epicenter of this activity is different than it is to us. Um, we don't have our, open borders. We don't have Europe open borders. has open borders. Our, our right. security uh, 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 protocols are different security right. protocols. Um, then this is a – do you want to talk about not getting into the details because it's going to become boring? Let me totally get into a boring aspect of this Well, right people now, expect in, you to be boring. I am, I am <laughs> going to live up to their expectations or down. Um, one interesting thing that I've learned over the last couple of days about this is that the Muslim populations that have come into Paris, and particularly to the suburbs of Paris, have not assimilated. When we have people come to this country, whether it's Muslims or anybody else, there's a, a tendency to assimilate. Mm-hmm. The cultural p- piece of this is different. Fundamentally, it's different. I, I, there, it's no way. It's not possible to look at the situation there and the situation here and look at them as truly analogous. I think it it underscores two things. The huge understanding of how the refugee resettlement process even works. The fact that these are people that the the U.S. only takes the most vulnerable populations. They have a sort of a higher threshold. We take next to to none of these folks to begin with. I mean, and we've taken out of, you know, there's been this huge European Syrian crisis and we've taken in about 2,200. Two of them, 200 of them have come to Texas. So the numbers are tiny at this point. But the second thing is that it also underscores sort of a misunderstanding of the 
you know, these people come to this country, they're settled in places where they can thrive, they're supposed to become self-sufficient, they're supposed to be able to get jobs, and their kids enroll in the same schools, and they learn English. Right. And so, yeah, there is a cultural aspect that there's just a complete misunderstanding of how it works and how these people are expected to come here and really assimilate into the culture. I mean, now, they're in Dallas, they're in Houston. The trick is going to be, uh, to, to come back to the political aspects of this, is it going to hurt people who have been more sympathetic to the refugees mm-hmm. uh, uh, politically. So Jeb Bush has been among the, not, I think, unique, rare among the presidential candidates. I Jeb wonder Bush where has, Rick Perry would come Jeb down Bush on has this. Been, well, yeah. let me come back to that in a second. So Jeb Bush has said, I believe, actually, we need to Well, Florida is a huge accept, hotbed for accept, refugee resettlement. To accept, if not, um, a Syri- you know, Christian refugees. Um, Condoleezza Rice overnight apparently said the same thing. You know, there are people on the Republican end of our political universe who have said, uh, you know, we, we no, no, this is we got to stop reacting emotionally or reacting viscerally. Mm-hmm. We've got to be, be smart about this. Somebody the other day, uh, I believe it was a Democratic consultant, uh, said with regard to the Abbott decision, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I miss Rick Perry. And the implication was that Rick Perry might have had uh, the same kind of reaction to this that he had had to allowing undocumented students to get mm-hmm. in-state tuition. Right. If you don't accept Syrian you refugees, heart, heart you don't have a heart. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I think that the Rick Perry who campaigned briefly in this campaign, border security, border security, border there is no way in hell Rick Perry would have said, let Syrian refugees come in. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there would have been a difference there. I, look, I think it's a political issue. It's happening at a moment in the presidential campaign that, quite honestly, is going to pivot the entire campaign away from mm-hmm. some of the BS that has, has infected it and toward this issue in a way that may finally reshuffle the deck on some of these uh, races. Um, and actually, you know, Ross said before we came in here, Ross, who's not on the podcast today, I think Jeb Bush still may have a chance in all this. O- honestly, he may be right. And what may give Jeb Bush the, the jumper cables on his campaign may be the fact that we're pivoting toward a big boy issue. Mm-hmm. A foreign a policy issue. Right, security Apparently issue. people like Ben Carson have some have some trouble with. Boy, that Ben Carson story in the Times yesterday, I, 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 I'm not ordinarily surprised by stuff. I kept rereading it going, I'm not reading this. The, no, I am reading this crop properly. But the latest is that Ben Carson's campaign has now called this guy who was quoted by the New York Times basically old. You know, the New York Times took advantage right. of an old of an man. On the they said, he's, he's at the end of his man. career, they said. I thought, wow, that's a nice euphemism. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. right. Well, but, who benefits from this then? Because, I mean, in, in the Republican field, we have a lot. We have, you know, people who don't have experience in politics. We have governors and we have relatively new senators. I mean, is there really anyone who can take the mantle and say, like, I can handle these situations? I think it's a case where experience, I mean, presuming that this the does Secretary have an effect. Of state? Presuming yeah. this does have an, an effect, it's a couple things. Experience matters is the first thing in office, and if you have experience with foreign policy, if you mm-hmm. happen to be the former Secretary of State, but not only, that matters. The second thing that matters is a strong political position that can be backed up in some way uh, by your own history, even if it's a recent history, of legislating or of preventing bad legislation. So mm-hmm. so a, a Cruz actually weirdly benefits from this because Cruz, even though he has very little experience in the Senate relative to some other people, this is kind of who Cruz has been all along. Cruz isn't just showing up suddenly at the party and going, okay, me too. This has been Cruz's whole affect on foreign policy to begin with. So he benefits. But, but, but in a general, does he? I mean, wouldn't a Jeb well, Bush benefit a little bit more uh, sure, considering Jeb, Florida? Sure, Jeb Bush. And for that matter, you know, although Kasich has been kind of a little weird on this over the last couple of days, pe- people who have been in office for a long time, have been around these kinds of problems, have a little bit of experience mm-hmm. or a lot of experience dealing with this stuff, probably help. Who it hurts, in theory, it hurts 
are the Trumps and the Carsons, the mm-hmm. people who are just showing up, and to a lesser degree, Fiorina, who've never been in office. And all, I would argue yeah. the young folks. I mean, I, this is probably not good. So you for, think this is bad for Rubio? I, this is probably not good for a Marco Rubio surge if you're looking for yeah. you know experience and people who've been around the block with this particular issue. Well, we saw last night that Rubio kind of went after Cruz on this, right? About the. Uh, uh, I, I believe it was surveillance powers and some of these things, right? And saying, right. you know, uh, whether that's quote unquote being soft on terrorism or something. Now, like here's that. who it does hurt it hurts Rand Paul. I think, because Rand Paul has been, A, let's not get involved in stuff right, overseas, and B, by the way, we hate all surveillance. And at this moment, it's like, you know, that may be a perfectly legitimate position to take, but when the public is flipped out about the idea that somehow we're going to get attacked and that we have terrorists who are doing stuff, we need to monitor what they're doing, to suddenly say, well, okay, no, you know, no intent. That's, 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 right. a, that's a tough yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, the public goes back and forth on this surveillance right. issue. It's like, you know, when nothing's going on, of course, right. stay out of our business. Right. And when stuff like this goes on, it's like, how could you not have known? Check right. everyone. Right. And, you know, right. and Hillary Clinton was in Dallas yesterday, trailed as ever by Patrick Svitek, that slacker <laughs> who doesn't like to work uh, at all. Uh, and 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 what he reported and others reported was that Hillary gravitated immediately in her speech to that topic to the topic of foreign policy and national security, naturally, it's one that she knows, um, it plays into her hands. You know, is Bernie Sanders, do you imagine Bernie Sanders as president in the middle of this crisis? That's Climate a question change. for, right, mm-hmm. or a living wage. Right. Yeah. You know, suddenly those issues become less, less present. But you know what, it's a long campaign. Well, speaking of those types of issues and in the timeliness department, we had a UTTT poll out uh, at the end of last week and the beginning of this week that showed pre-Paris, the uh, pre-Paris attacks, illegal immigration and foreign terrorist groups were still Texas voters or already Texas voters' top concerns. Right. Border security is top the list, and border security means different things at different moments Mm -hmm. and to different people. Mm -hmm. Border security in previous iterations of this conversation really means we don't want as much migration north from Mexico and from Central America um, or South America. That, that, that's been the, when we've talked about border security, it's been very specific to the immigration question and not to the national security right. uh, question. Uh, but sure, I mean, this is consistent with who Texans are and what they believe, and I think it's going to be ever more so as a result of, of that now. That's not a surprise. Right. There were other things in the poll that were more of a surprise and maybe nothing more than the fact that this is a trump Cruz race on the Republican side. I like to think that this Republican poll uh, had something for everybody. Um, it had something for the grassroots guys who are rooting for the favorite son in this race, which is now Cruz. But it also had something for the disruptors who think we need to blow the whole system up and put an outsider in office. And, um, and it had something for journalism <laughs> because Headlines. a Trump a Trump Cruise race would be <laughs> <Forever>. like <laughs> right. Well, for all of us, honestly, if you have a Trump Cruise fight between now and March first, this is going to be the best. It's like place. Evan's birthday, not just his mom's birthday. The wor- My mother would actually be thrilled about this too. It was this a twenty-seven, twenty-seven. What I mean, twenty-seven, twenty-seven. Uh, and you know, look, there's a poll today that said that uh, Trump uh, WBUR in New Hampshire has a poll in New Hampshire Republican electorate that has Trump at twenty-two. Carson at 11. So, so much for the Ben Carson takeover mm-hmm. of the Republican Party and so much for Trump collapsing. A- you know, what Amy Chozik said a month ago at the Tribune Festival is true today. People who think Donald Trump is a summer fling, it's mid-November. Yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe we just have to get up every day and stop thinking he'll be gone. I mean, I think we're definitely at the point where we have to stop things right? and be gone, especially when you look at, I mean, to me, the most interesting aspect of that poll was actually who Texans said they couldn't vote for under any circumstances. Right. And Jeb Bush, I think 25 percent of the Republicans polled by the Tribune and UT said that they could not vote for 
Jeb Bush on race circumstances. I mean, he was more the top people, of the list, right? More people said that they could not vote for Jeb Bush than George Pataki. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's illogical. And Lindsey Graham, I think, was the closest it's illogical. second. I mean, Lindsey Graham is actually like a guy. I mean, you got to get Lindsey Graham. George Pataki? More people would not vote for Jeb Bush than George Pataki? Come on. I'm not sure if 25% of people know who George Pataki is. is. <laughs> Watkins. Maybe that's the why they put... That's it. But, you know, the, of course, then the cherry on a Sunday here is that yesterday the Hill... A newspaper in Washington, D.C. had a story that uh, said that Trump had been asked, uh, who would be your running mate if you want to run? And he said, well, I like Ted Cruz. And I thought, oh, a Trump Cruz ticket. <laughs> the God I Evan's worship. Dream come the true. God I worship does not love me enough to give me that. But going back That's to the these Paris best. attacks, this was yeah. before that. So I wonder how that changes the Trump versus Cruz outcome. Well, but it, of course, before the Paris attacks, it was Donald Trump who said on that unhinged day when he you know, said all those things mm-hmm. that everybody said would kill him and, of course, didn't. Of we course, need to bomb. We said, we need to bomb the shit out of ISIS. That's what he said. He said that before the Paris attacks. So I actually think Donald Trump is kind of right with where the mood of the country is. Well, I mean, in terms of security issues and, and control over that, because we've seen yeah. him in debates not really have a big control over foreign policy compared to some of the other well, candidates. Well, the shame actually is that the next Republican debate is not until December 15th. God, it would have been interesting the to shame. have a Repu- Well, it is a shame. I mean, it would have been interesting to have all those candidates on stage now and say, okay, react to Right, they had the Democrats on stage the next night. <coughs> yeah, right. yeah, and shifted gears, although the Democrats like to plan their debates when no one is watching. Saturday night. Saturday right. night. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think NCIS Charlotte got a bigger rating than, uh, right, than the Democrats. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I think Alexis right. You know, the conversation and everybody was talking after the last debate about, you know, well, we're going to see Marco Rubio surge. It looked like in the last poll numbers I saw he was still down around like 10 percent or something. Rubio's best case is that everybody else falls away and that right. everybody mm-hmm. looks at the field. Like we said over many weeks of this podcast, they go eh, 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 and then they shrug and they go Rubio. That actually may be Rubio's best chance here is for everybody to look at the other people in the race and go, no, 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 couldn't, can't, won't. Okay, Rubio. Right. And then it becomes, from Rubio's perspective, then the opportunity is to create a real contrast between himself and Hillary Clinton. If you go back to when Rubio announced the race, again, in the race, he said, yesterday's gone, it's not coming back. He's positioning Mm -hmm. himself as a generational candidate, much like Obama. Hillary Clinton said specifically in that debate on Saturday night, I'm from the 60s. Then the Rubio people immediately cut that clip out and made a web ad of that because they want this to be a race between Rubio and somebody who says, I'm from the 60s. So generationally, it benefits the Republicans to have that argument made. But again, to what you said, if this is a race about stuff blowing up, do you want the person who's been Secretary of State or do you want the fresh-faced former mm-hmm. speaker mm-hmm. of the Florida House. That's how the Democrats are going to turn that back around. And right. Remember when Reagan ran against Mondale and there was concern? No. no, you don't remember this. No, <laughs> none, of you was, none of you was born. When Ra- let, me, let, me, let me lecture you on <laughs> politics in the 80s. When Reagan ran against Mondale in 84, Reagan at that point was beginning to show signs of his age being a liability, and there was concern in the debates that that would be more evident. And Mondale, I don't think, brought it up, but I think one of the moderators, those awful moderators of debates, brought up Reagan's age. Is there an age issue in this race? And Reagan said, yes, age is a legitimate issue, and I promise not to exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) He basically spiked the whole issue. So I think there's two ways to look at the age issue. And I think the Democrats probably would try to take a page from Reagan in that case. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, Matthew, you had a huge scoop this week that the U.S. Department of Education was investigating three Texas universities over their handling of sexual assault allegations on campus. Uh, And one of those cases of the three is pretty unusual. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, well, at Texas A&M, they've been been under investigation since March. And the unusual thing about this particular case is that in most of these investigations, which is done by the Office for Civil Rights out of the Department of Education, uh, investigators have, you know, looked into whether schools weren't doing enough to handle accusations of sexual assault on campus, uh, especially between students. Um, In this case, it's the opposite. Um, They're investigating a complaint by a male student who was suspended for about seven months from the university, basically saying that his, his rights were violated in the way that they went about you know, uh, investigating and and conducting a hearing about whether he he was responsible for these sexual assaults. Um, it's an interesting case just because we've seen a lot of pressure in the last few years from the Department of Education saying schools need to be doing more about this. They need to be trying their best to keep their uh, students safe. And now to see the Department of Education coming out and saying, um, wait, did you go too far? I think is a surprise. It was just definitely a surprise to A&M, and I think it, it, it will come as a surprise to um, other schools and people who follow this issue. Well, and A&M has been uh, pretty vocal about it. They've talked to you for a series of articles this week. I mean, I think this case is fascinating because I'm wondering if we're watching a pendulum swinging, right? I mean, again, in 2011, I believe it was 2011, the Obama administration basically said to universities, you know, you need to take a much harder uh, look at sexual assault cases. Just because the police are involved doesn't mean you you don't need to open an investigation. In fact, you do have to open an investigation. You don't need due process to penalize students. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, is this sort of, first of all, do we have any example, other examples of the Department of Education looking at cases through this lens? And are we going to start to see more and more, particularly male students, like, you know, lodging claims with the Department of Education saying basically my civil rights have been violated because I've been pushed off campus without due process? I think to your last question, the answer is definitely yes. And we've, you know, we, we've seen lawsuits um, before from schools who were kicked off campus saying their rights were violated. You know, one of the issues here is that the Department of Education um, and, and a lot of activists as well felt like just waiting for the criminal justice system to act in these cases wasn't enough because um, a lot of this is, you know, there's alcohol involved, there's no witnesses, it's basically one person's word against yeah, another. he said, she said, or exactly. he said, he said, or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And um, in those cases, it's, you know, in a criminal court, that's really hard to prosecute. And a lot of times, it doesn't even get that far. And so, um, but at the same time, we've seen these studies saying, you know, one out of every five women um, is sexually assaulted or the victim of an attempt of sexual assault while they're on a college campus. And so, you know, the um, the Department of Education was viewing this as a, a civil rights issue. If you don't feel safe on campus, then you're not getting the best education you can get from your right. school. Pretty, if you're a woman and you're in class with, you know, someone you've accused of sexual assault, you know, there's no way that you're comfortable in like getting the same level education as the male. That's the argument. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The difficult thing is, is that when you ask the schools to investigate, you know, these are school, these are people that are not trained to, you know, investigate what is essentially a criminal act. Yeah, and, no forensic mm-hmm. evidence. Or, right. Exactly. And uh, what the a president, Michael Young, told me uh, this week was that, 
you know, the the people that are prosecuting this in courts, they have, uh, you know, they went to law school, they've they've had clerkships, they've had all these different things, and and universities don't have the resources to do that. They try to train their investigators as much as they can, but it's just. There's so many tools, the no subpoena power, no forensic evidence that you can use to investigate. And so, the victims don't have to testify, right? Exactly. Right. They you know, they, they tell their story, but there's you're not like in a courtroom, the witness on the victim on the stand being cross examined by a lawyer and everything right. like there that. There is no cross examination. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the issue here then just becomes or the complaint that has arisen from the people who have been kicked out is they're saying you know the, the argument is that you don't need the full due process of a criminal court because you're not a, a student's freedom, his liberty is not at risk. He's not going to jail if he gets found responsible. But the 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 people who have been punished, their argument is getting kicked out of your college on a sexual assault charge is a pretty serious. Yeah, you might life as well event. be going to jail. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're you're. It's going to be really hard to get into another school or get a um, job or, or get a job or anything right. like that. Exactly. And so and plus, nothing is private anymore. Right. Exactly. So you're, you're not only unable to get a job or get another school, but you are subjected to the shame of the universe, and it's almost without regard to the facts. You may or may not be culpable in this case to the degree that the school has found you to be culpable through their process, and it's a case of you're convicted on A1 and acquitted on C23. Like, what actually happens ultimately yeah. doesn't matter. Well, and, and who, right. right, I mean, who is it the university's responsibility to protect? At the end of the day, like, if you have not enough facts and it seems like you need to just make a judgment right. call, it seems like you're erring on the side of the victim or alleged victim versus erring on well, the side of the alleged, you know. I think the question becomes, do you change the threshold of evidence needed in these cases in, right. in the college you know, within the college perspective, or do you change the investigators and bring in actual criminal investigators who can maybe carry more weight and actually do sort of right. more intensive investigation? It's a little bit like some of the political conversations we've had around issues where the burden of proof is no longer on the accuser or no longer on the accused. How am I, how am I saying this? Where the bur- I, I'm totally down with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Where the, So the burden is no longer on who it was on before. Now the burden is on... You have to right. basically prove... That you're innocent, right. as opposed yeah. to right. you have the to dis- you have to disprove it. a negative. Exactly, exactly. Right. I, I, exactly. I agree. Which um, is, which can we just acknowledge the whole campus political environment these days is just totally been upturned. Mm. I mean, you know, th- this stuff is so interesting. All the free speech versus the thought police stuff on campuses mm-hmm. all over the country is so interesting. Mm-hmm. What a, what a time. It is, well, and I think what's really fascinating about this time is this, you know, one thing that has changed a little bit at A&M since this case, and you're seeing it at universities around the country, is this concept of affirmative consent, right? Mm-hmm. Which, Matthew, can explain at length. But basically, it's like, you know, you have to, it's not enough to say no, you have to say yes. You know, if you're someone who wants to engage in sexual activity with somebody else, you basically need to ask that person at every step of the way, at every base, if you will, like, do you want to proceed? Yes, you need like a, a verbal affirmation that you want it, right? Yeah, sign, the, a, the, sign a waiver? Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, yes <laughs> means yes. And to have, you know, if someone has been sexually assaulted and they've been a victim of, you know, something that could be very traumatic, do you put the burden on them to prove that this happened to them? I mean, it's, right. a, it's a very fine line. And there's a long history in this country of disbelieving exactly. rape victims, for instance. Right. right. And, well, and you bring up like what's right. going on on college campuses. And I think that's one of the more fascinating things is that you have sort of women coming up and, and being louder about what's happening to them and calling for more equality in a lot of ways, including right. this one. Well, yes. and also non-women, but 
non-whites mm-hmm. who have said there's a you know there's all this stuff going on on campuses and no one is listening to us and no one is taking right. it seriously and the result of that as we know in the Missouri case has been the departure of administrators and you know there are comparable protests happening in places like Yale and Ethica College and all that it really is it's I'll come back it's an interesting time on college campuses now and not necessarily a good interesting like a euphemistically interesting well so I mean time. speaking of that you know let's talk a little bit about campus carry I know there was the big Bing. big higher ed symposium uh, this week Evan I believe you interviewed Ken Starr I did. Uh, at Baylor, who had what I thought was kind of an unusual take, maybe not for a private school, um, you know, Chancellor, but but where did he come down on campus, carry? Well, so what preceded the conversation with uh, Chancellor Starr was a conversation that Matthew led with a number of members of the legislature, including Senator Brian Birdwell from Grand Bay, Republican. Uh, w- uh, the campus carry issue is in part associated with uh, Birdwell. He's been a big advocate for campus carry. Um, Matthew asked him, among other things, to comment on the protests happening primarily on the UT Austin campus, although not limited to UT Austin professors, who've said essentially, we don't want guns in our classrooms, and we're going to do whatever we can to keep guns out. Matthew asked Senator Birdwell, you know, is this okay? Will they prevail on this? And Senator Birdwell's response was essentially, not just no, but hell no. That's right. And and not just no, but, and if schools try to do this, we will take action. And I come back to what we said weeks ago on this Tribcast and elsewhere, that this is a little bit like county clerks refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. It's the law. You have a choice, and the choice is quit your job. That's kind of effectively what happened on that issue, and that's effectively what's happening, and I suspect will happen on on the issue of these faculty members. You're not required to remain in your position. You can decide to take another job. The faculty members who said they're going to resist this are going to find out very quickly, per Birdwell, the law is a law. You don't like it. You're right. Well, but it's protest. also a little bit different, right? Because they, the state says, well, you can you have some discretion over which areas are gun-free zones, but then the schools are going to do that, and then it's going to be like, well, no, you chose too many gun-free zones. Like, how do you or balance the, that? Or from the faculty perspective, you chose too few. Right. The, the, right. The, the standard here is that universities can declare zones, but that it can have the effect of banning guns on campus. Right. As a practical um, matter, they could make the entire campus a gun-free zone, but they're not going to. The thing is, right. and, they, and they can't, really. Neither they, yeah. the public universities nor the private universities from top to bottom want this and at that, all. And, I mean, that's and, that was, and that was Chancellor right. Starr's point. So this is a I very, mean, you know, Baylor is, a, Baylor is the most small C conservative campus, one would argue, among the big privates in the whole state. Definitely. Right? Yeah. And, and one of the most small C conservative probably in the whole it's country. It's the largest Baptist school in the country. In the whole country. It is the oldest continually operating university in Texas. And it's Ken Starr. And, the, and, and <laughs> it, it, it has the most hidebound of the hidebound traditional cultures that is what the alums of Baylor and the parents and students who are associated with Baylor currently like about it. That's Baylor. Mm-hmm. I actually thought, so TCU said on Friday that they're not going to uh, opt in to campus carry. They're going to opt out. Back at the Tribune Festival, Matthew's, uh, uh, Matthew reported the presidents of Trinity University and Austin College and Paul Quinn College all said they were going to opt out. Yeah. Rice was kind of futzing around with it, although... Honestly, we've, when you think about the Rice alumni and the Rice students, yeah. does Rice we, strike you as a campus <laughs> carry? We, we've seen hints. They haven't come out and said, but we've seen hints that SMU and Rice are both going to opt out. As SMU well. is likely to opt out, but they haven't said formally. Correct. But I went into this thinking, well, I'm going to ask President Starr, because, Chancellor Starr, because they've said basically we're investigating it. And I honestly expected him to say, we're going to opt in. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll tell you right now, we are likely to opt out. And the reason is what you said, Emily. We don't want it. We think it creates... A, uh, an unsafe environment on campus, and he said in the parlance of the lawyer and judge he is, 
I'd like to call to the stand the head of our public safety department at the campus. He would say, testify, this is bad. And look, this is the argument that took place all session long. The party of local control is the party in charge of Texas. This is a form, one might say, of local control. The campuses, the presidents, the chancellors, public and private local control of their campuses, they would say, we don't want this stuff on, not uniformly, but almost uniformly. Legislature thinks it knows better what's good for these campuses and for the state. Now, in the case of the privates, they did have the option by way of the law to opt out. And what's happening is they're opting out. Yeah. Well, they're and, opting out. and what Birdwell says in this is that it's the, the right to the the, the right to carry a gun is a right that's guaranteed under the Constitution. Right. And he Constitution says that, trumps everything. Yeah, he says this isn't a debate about safety. This isn't a debate about anything that the opponents are trying to make it. He says it's a debate about preserving the right to carry your gun. Yeah. Um, the, the only other thing I would also say about this is that there are other states that have, and this argument has been made as well by supporters of campus carry, there are other states that have rules like this. And it turns out the number of people who carry end up carrying guns on campus is pretty low uh, for various reasons. The main one being that you have to be 21 or older yeah. to <laughs> be Age a, and have a permit. The majority right. of undergraduates are not going to have the opportunity to do this. The ones who do carry are going to have to go through the same training and licensing process that civilians do outside of campus, right? I don't know if it was John Sharp. I think it was John Sharp, Matthew, who said during his, I don't know if it was formal testimony or some written Test, written discussion of this issue during the session, you got a kid who is across the street from the campus, less than a block away, who's 21, not on campus, so he's now on sort of just regular, regular old Texas soil, who can carry. What is the difference a block away versus on campus? That, that, and I, I honestly understand the logic of that, but it is the decision of these private institutions to opt out, and so far we haven't, I don't know that we're aware of any opting in. No, no, not aware of any that are opting in. And really, I mean, I think the Baylor one was, it's hard to call it a blow for supporters of the law because the law is already passed. But in right. terms of the public debate about this, um, yeah. it, it's, it's substantial. It reinforces the sense of the opposition that there is widespread right. opposition to this, even That's in right. places you might not expect. Well, That's also, right. if you because if you look at the economic breakdown of private versus public students, you know, you have, it's it's a very stark difference and students at public schools might not be able to afford to go to private schools where they don't have to worry about guns. So Correct. that becomes a second problem or related one. All right. Well, if you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Evan, Matthew, Alexa, and our producer, Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. I would read an oral history of Midnight Taco. <laughs> <laughs>